My name is Liam Garvey, one of the pastors here. It's good to uh, be here together to share in God's Word together. Why don't you uh, open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles in front of you, that's on page 1147. Uh, 1147. As Ian said, we are... Uh, continuing our series tonight in the book of 1 Corinthians, and uh, we're going to read from chapter 6, verse 1 to 11. Uh, But before we read that, shall we pray together? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these scriptures that are God-breathed. We thank you that according to Proverbs, they are flawless, these words. Uh, So help us uh, humble ourselves under the hearing of your word and to consider what is taught tonight. Uh, We ask for your help by the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, reading from verse 1. This is what God's word has to say. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have, already, you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. This is God's Word. Can I have the first slide on screen, thanks? Well, in November, you never thought you'd see their faces up in church, did you? Uh, In November 2001... A leading newspaper broke news that brothers Liam and Noel Gallagher were taking their sibling issues to court. 
Liam Gallagher, the lead singer of the band Oasis, uh, released a statement uh, telling us, the public, apparently interested, uh, that he was suing his brother. No. I have taken legal action against Noel Gallagher for the statements he made claiming Oasis pulled out of the 2009 V Festival Chelmsford gig because I had a hangover. That's a lie. And I want Oasis... Fa- I can't even be bored reading the rest of the statement. It's so boring and pointless. But the fact that one brother has taken another brother to court, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? It's crazy, isn't it? I think there are, there, are, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who love Oasis and there are those who hate Oasis. Now, for those who love the band Oasis, it was dispiriting, a real disappointment to see their heroes on the way to a hearing. Fans were commenting on these articles in the newspapers. Please resolve your disputes away from the courts. Why not sort it out yourselves? You know who wrote that comment in the column? Peggy, their mother. Hilarious. Pick up the phone, you know. Don't leave a comment on the telegraph, for goodness sake. Or for those who have already despised Oasis, which I'm sure most do, it was yet another PR disaster for them, wasn't it? Don't you think so? Even columnists from NME, that award-winning music magazine, slated the brothers asking, is this going to win them any fans? That is, followers. Now, we might hear, about, hear that story and just think, well, what a bunch of losers. <laughs> I mean, fighting the very people they're supposed to love the most, disappointing members of their, their fan base, even members of their family who are just saddened by the dispute, hanging out their dirty washing in public, really to their shame. It's terrible, isn't it? But actually... In 1 Corinthians 6, what we see is that there is something similar going on in the life of the church. Because the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 6, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. Now, I want to say from the very off that Paul here is raising the question as to what we do in relation to certain disputes and disagreements. He's, and he's, he's saying that they are doing something wrong by taking each other to court. And we'll get to that. But from, what, from the off, I want to be expressly clear. Paul is addressing civil disputes here. Okay? He's not addressing criminal disputes. Now, if a crime is... Compi- uh, this is not the scenario, in other words, of a reportable crime. Uh, if a crime is committed, let me be the first to encourage you, report the crime. Okay? I want to make that expressly clear from the off. Because Paul is not here discrediting secular courts. There are two other occasions in his, the letters that he writes to churches where we see Paul at one point in Romans 13 commending magistrates as those who have been put in order by God. And another time he actually appeals to courts uh, for, for his benefit and uh, because he was completely entitled to do so. But what Paul is dealing with here is a civil dispute which probably involves some kind of disagreement over money or property owned. So we see a little bit later in the text uh, where he says, uh, you know, you're cheated or you're wronged. Uh, It sounds like, although we're not particularly clear, it sounds like it's money related or uh, property related. It doesn't sound like someone has been murdered. 
So what we have in 1 Corinthians 6 is Paul rebuking the church for the way they are handling this disagreement. And this is an important thing for us to consider as well. So if we're asking questions like, how should Christians resolve disputes with one another? When marriages break down, when husbands and wives disagree, where if, sadly, that disagreement ends in divorce, or when siblings question the division of the estate of a dead relative, or when a Christian tenant doesn't agree with the amount of deposit returned by the Christian landlord, or when a business partnership between two Christians turns sour. Those are the kind of things I think Paul is helping us to consider tonight. What principles then do we glean from 1 Corinthians 6? And what, two principle, what principles can we apply to help us respond in a godly way, in a God-honoring way that, that doesn't bring about heartache in the Christian family that is the church? dispirited and disappointed followers of Christ? Or how do we respond in such a way that doesn't bring the name of Jesus into disrepute? I mean, if there is, that God has set the church to exist, to be a display of his glory to the nations. God has staked his very reputation on us, on the church. Certainly the church worldwide. But no doubt in the local expressions of of that church that we have right here. I think in this passage we find two main principles that if employed will prevent us from those things. And Paul, really, what I want us to see at the start of this, he does two things. He, he, he grabs their head and he turns it two ways. In verses 1 to 8, he turns their heads forward to say, look forward, remember, you are end time Judges. Fascinating. And then in verses 9 to 11, he turns their head back to say, remember what you were. You were one-time sinners. And what Paul is doing is he's saying, keep those things in mind and you'll be able to respond rightly in a godly fashion, protecting the reputation of Christ even when disagreements happen between members of a church, between Christians. Okay? So number one, Paul's encouraging them to look forward, saying, you are end-time judges. So here's the principle of looking forward. I need to explain this just briefly to you, because we're going to see this uh, uh, rise up a lot in 1 Corinthians from this point forward. Paul does something in this text that he does again and again. He points us forward to end times. When the day of judgment comes... And in doing so, what he does is he puts us in the picture. He teaches us about who we are destined to be on that day. And what we, based on what we are destined to do, he says, let the knowledge of your role and your experience on that coming day inform how you live in the present. Okay? So look forward, see what you're destined to be, and in light of that, live like it right now with God's help. And that's what he's trying to do here. So in this passage, we see that when the dispute arises between two 
Christians, Paul calls them to remember, obviously it seems what he's taught them before, that they are a community with a great future to look forward to. Called to belong to God in the present age and, oh we cannot wait, called to belong to him and to be with him in the age to come. Isn't that what we all long for and desire as Christians? And as those who are united to Christ, Paul is trying to help these Corinthian Christians see that their destiny was entirely bound up with Christ's destiny. One day he would return to judge and they too would be involved in that judgment. So verse 2 tells us very plainly, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? By the way, did you notice how many questions there are? In this text, for a Corinthian church who thought that they were, puffed, they were puffed up with their knowledge. They thought they knew everything. They thought they had heavenly wisdom. And Paul is again humbling them by saying, do you not know this? Really, I thought you would have, gra- I thought you would have got this by now. Do you not know that the saints, that is uh, people who are Christians, this is not people of a moral perfection as some people understand the word this is just quite simply those who are redeemed by the blood of the lamb despite their wickedness those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ do you not know that the saints that's us that's just believers will judge the world and then verse 3 do you not know that we will judge angels isn't that incredible Uh, I have no idea what that's going to look like. Uh, I think we have a reference here back to Daniel chapter 7, which which points to that somehow those who belong to the one who is the son of man are going to participate with him in the judgment of the world. You see that in some of the parables that Jesus teaches in the gospel. We see that in Matthew at some point. And even in Revelation chapter 3, when the Lord Jesus is addressing one of the churches, he says... uh, To those who overcome, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. And there is implied in that judgment. So if, as we look forward, people who are Christians are destined to judge the world and judge angels, then Paul's argument flows like this in verse 3. Surely then you should be competent to judge trivial cases like disagreements over money or over property. So it's an argument from the greater to the lesser here. And the logic goes like this. If you are to exercise jurisdiction and judgment on the last day, then should you not actually have enough God-given wisdom now to deal with the comparatively trivial offenses which you are experiencing day to day in the world? So you have to admit, it's quite a big thing to have some kind of responsibility in judging the world with the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It's a big thing. Compare that to judging whether or not a landlord should pay back £900, the full deposit, or £500. It's trivial, okay? I think that's what Paul's point is. And again, it's just striking. As Paul asks the questions of them, he's not showing up that they don't know these things. He's showing up that they're not actually practicing these things. This church that boasted in its wisdom and maturity could not even solve its own petty internal disagreements. Sad, isn't it? 
And Paul says, if you're competent to judge the world, you should be competent to judge these trivial cases. If you will one day judge angels, how much more judge the menial things of this life? That's what he says in verse 3. How much more the things of this life? Now, what does Paul do here? He tries to point out to them then the absurdity of their current actions. Paul's big problem is that the believers here are trying to sort out their disputes by going before the ungodly for judgment rather than fellow believers. And that's just wrong in the first instance, but take into account the fact that the Corinthian courts had a a terrible reputation for corruption. Actually, we've mentioned earlier in our series that Corinth was a place that loved its rhetoric, that loved the guys who could present perfectly, the rhetoricians and the orators who could speak wonderfully. Well, that's what they wanted to see in their courts, you understand, when they were facing disagreements and disputes over money and property and things like that. It wasn't really a place where they were sorting out their their legal matters. Actually, they were already sorted out before because without question, the one who had the most money, the one who had the best reputation, the one who had the most acreage in his portfolio, he was the one that won. So the courts actually just became a place where they could just show off their skills and get up and dance with their tongues. It just must have been ridiculous and a terrible shame for those who were losing out, those who were poorer. But their judgments reflected the statements and the the character of the corrupt. Verdicts were bought and sold. Therefore, Christians then taking their internal disputes to be settled in those courts was just a monumental failure from the off. Not least in the witness that they were providing to the non-Christians around them. And we know how important that is. So that's why Paul does not want these people seeking settlement by means of outsiders, those who are non-Christians. And then comes the therefore, okay? Here's the point of this. Therefore, if you have have disputes about such matters, verse 4, appoint as judges, even men of little account in the church. In other words... Even if it's someone that you don't really think that much of, there has to be someone in the church with a kind of the mind of Christ, with a godly mentality who understands the, the sacrifice that Christ has made on the cross for us. The under, someone who understands what humility is all about and the centrality of that in a believer's life. Someone at least who understands that these kind of disputes and disagreements tear at the very fabric of the church's life and tear down the very things that the Lord Jesus Christ is trying to build up in the life of his church as a witness to him, as a reflection of his goodness and of his character. They're shooting themselves in the foot, aren't they? We really do not want to bring our petty disputes, which can so easily misrepresent the good news of Christ, to unbelievers, do we? To hang out your dirty washing in public. Think about that image. It's a phrase that we often just say. 
and let it roll off our tongues. We've become familiar with it, but think about it. That's horrible, isn't it? It's gross. What do we want to be taken to outsiders instead as a church? Charlotte Chapel, what would you like to be taking? What message do you want to be communicating to outsiders? The kind of things that surely make them think, wow, I want to understand who this Jesus Christ is. There's something compelling about the way you're living. You are, you are distinct. You are, you are different from me and from the world. And this is what it means to be holy, to be set apart. We want people to see in us the hope for a life that is focused on more important things than whatever can be gained in a secular court. Whether it's 500 or 5,000 pounds that you might stand to benefit from or win in a secular court when taking another Christian to law. Such disputes will end in one thing only, Paul says. He shows us in verse 7 and 8, complete defeat. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourself cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. It is what we would call a spectacular own goal, isn't it? You know, you're supposed to be shooting the other way, not turning around and firing it into the top corner of your own net. It's crazy. It's senseless. The guys on your team are just thinking, what are you doing? Your fans are just like, whatever. Even the opposition fans are just like, I thought he was on their team. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's actually on our team. Why not rather be wronged, Paul says. Wronged in Greek means no justice. Far better to actually get no justice than to bring a brother or a sister to court. Because no matter who wins the case, in that kind of example, everyone's already lost. It doesn't matter what you gain financially or materially. It's all loss. Our lives are supposed to be a picture of, of love and of reconci- the reconciliation of God. And it's ironic at best and hypocritical at worst for us to fail in reconciliation over minor disputes and to think that the right response is legal action in a secular court. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. That you what? What's the word? Love. You can talk to me, it's okay. Love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you... There's the word again, love one another. So does legal action promote love? No, in most cases, there's a winner and a loser. One party delighted that things have gone his way, the other's angry. And Paul's saying in all of this, you should be ashamed of yourselves. I write this to shame you. And again, it's really interesting that in this text, he does exactly what he's done in chapter 5. So remember the guy who was in a in a wrongly, sexually immoral relationship with his mother-in-law. He doesn't address the sin. He addresses the bigger issue of the church letting that happen and not doing anything about it. Similarly here, he doesn't actually deal with the sin of one brother taking the other one to court. He doesn't name them and shame them in the letter. He's actually addressing the church's deficiency here. 
Why have you not dealt with this? Surely there's got to be someone, someone among you, even a man of little account, who could just help these guys sort it out. You should be ashamed of yourselves. So Paul is trying to deflate this puffed up church and shame them into doing what is right. And, and brothers and sisters, we have to think about this uh, seriously. Um, we, we do live in a society where legal action is is more and more coming to the fore. I don't think we're as bad as we are as they are in the United States. Sorry, I just looked at a brother from the United States as I said that. That was unintentional. I should have looked this way. Um, I remember in 98 being in America and at my aunt's house in, in New York State and then baffled reading in the newspaper of a burglar who fell through someone's skylight and was suing them for a faulty skylight. Now, that's crazy. Anyway, that's an aside. Um, Brothers and sisters, we need to think seriously about this because this litigation, this power of litigation can be something that might well encroach into the church. I was even thinking about it this morning as I was walking down that back stairwell and nearly slipped because of the water from the baptismal tank. I thought, oh, oh wow, if I fell and broke my back, I couldn't even take the church to court, you know. I mean, there are things we need to think about here. Even if we're not directly involved in a dispute, though, this, is, this isn't just an issue for two believers who are in dispute, okay? So we're not detached from this at all. This, this is an issue for the church. Even if we're not directly involved in a dispute between two people, we as a church should be willing, as a family together, to give our time to help resolve conflicts within our midst. It's better for our primary mission that we keep that kind of work inside the church when it comes to these trivial cases. And all of us need to do this, helping each other with disputes in, in all the areas that I mentioned at the start, whether it's within our marriages, whether it's in business relationships. Some people in this church work together in business life. Uh, with friends, with brothers and sisters in, the, uh, in those sad cases when we are hearing an executor read a will. This kind of judging is part of the work of the church for the sake of our witness to outsiders. And I suppose even if we do ever find ourselves in dispute with a brother or sister, what should we do? Paul's, Paul's answer is, Paul doesn't want you on the phone to injure lawyers for you. He wants you to consider how your reaction to some wrongdoing best reflects the gospel. Of how that best reflects the very character of God so that our witness might be pure and good. Where we should say that if any action on our part would bring the name of Jesus into disrepute, we should say, I would rather be wrong than give someone in our city reason to ridicule Jesus Christ. I'd rather take the hit, in other words. So take it to the church where love and peace are meant to rule. Where fairness is meant to be a, a distinctive mark. Where brothers and sisters with the mind of Christ and an understanding of reconciliation can help figure out a way. And again, if, if, if in the end you're not happy, why not take the hit? Think of Christ. On that road to Calvary, even as we were singing earlier, he was wronged. He did not retaliate. 
Christ suffered for us on our behalf. This is the paradigm of the cross, you understand. So as we look forward to see your end-time judges acting away, act in a way that is honoring to God and his character. And secondly, Paul turns the head from looking forward to the end time. He takes the head of the Corinthian church and ours and turns back to say, look, you were, you were one-time sinners in verses 9 to 11. Paul's concern is that the way these guys are behaving might just prove that they are not of Christ after all. He says, the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God. Sin in the Corinthian church, you see, is not simply uh, 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 in the act of taking another brother. It's not sinning just in simply the act of taking another brother to court, but actually behind that in the behavior that led to that act. And the implication is very clear here. Paul is warning the Corinthians, if they carry on behaving in this way, they too may end up judged. That's why you see in verse 9, his concern, don't be deceived. In other words, they are deceived. That's the implication. If you're really behaving like this, then you might just be deceived into thinking that you are in Christ, but in fact, your, your behavior betrays that you are not. Don't kid yourself on thinking that just because you go to church, you're a Christian. I think I've said it before in the church, but going to church makes you a Christian as much as going to a garage makes you a car. Not when your life looks more like an unbeliever than it does Christ can you behave like this. I mean, if someone claims, we know this in the natural realm, don't we? I mean, if someone claims to be a Hearts fan but goes to all the Hibs games, you'd have to wonder about where their allegiance lies, wouldn't you? Why anyone would go to either, I'm not quite sure. But Paul goes on here to list some sins, not because these are the worst sins that he can think of or the worst evils that he can really think of, but because they are the sins that are actually threatening to take root in the Corinthian church and strangle the life out of the Corinthian church. Paul's saying, I'm concerned about these things. Sexual immorality and idolatry in its various forms are smothering you. And it's evident in the fact your greed is, part of, is, is, is a symptom of your underlying sin that is idolatry. You want more and you will do everything you can to get it. And as has been said before, the church was certainly in the city of Corinth, but the problem was there was too much of Corinth in the church. Are we worldly? How would you respond by your words? Now think about your life. If your actions and your stuff could speak, what would it say? And it's quite a list, this, this list of sin here. And I have to say as well, it's not that anyone who ever commits one of these sins is forever lost. Paul, Paul isn't mandating perfect mastery over every sin as the price to enter heaven. We, we know in Romans chapter 4 verse 5 that God delights to justify the wicked. What Paul is getting at here is that the life of a truly saved person will not be marked by greed, by slander or any of these sins here. God saves Christians, remember, not just from the penalty of such sin through faith in Christ, that is death, but actually from the power of that sin also. 
And here's where Paul almost metaphorically just eyeballs the Corinthian church and says, now remember, that is what you were. Were. Now isn't that hopeful, brother or sister, uh, friend, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, maybe even as we read through those, that list, you might have thought, tick, 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 tick. Yeah, so have I. But there is a, a wonderful word here. Did you see it? That's what some of you were. So in other words, transformation is possible. Change is possible. Forgiveness for those sins is possible. So it's not that there's no hope for struggling with such sins. Far from it. Verse 11 tells us that you, friend, if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian. And for those of us here who are, this is our testimony, isn't it? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God washed. The stain of sin in our lives washed away by the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, washed by his blood. Sanctified, set apart by God from the wickedness of the world in order to live a godly life as one of his children, bearing the family likeness and justified. The very opposite, actually, of what verse 9 says, the unrighteous. We have been declared righteous. That's what it means to be justified. God, the judge of all the earth, when we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, having repented of our sins, looks at us and says, not guilty not guilty. You're free, all on account of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. And what you see in here is just a wonderful work of God, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's a wonderful Trinitarian work out of the perfect community of God himself. As Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he has created a new community, the church and its worldwide body in which meaningful membership is found in those local expressions and God is building it. Therefore, do not do things that tear it down. To do so is to set yourself up against God. Don't tear it down by disputes or any other way. So what has this got to do with the, the conflict in the church here? Well, if you have experienced this justification before The bar, if you like, in God's courtroom, the implication of this teaching is that you ought to behave with each other and treat each other the same way. With grace and mercy, even in disputes. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? In the grand scheme of things in eternity, what will serve your soul best? In the grand scheme of God's mission to this world to make his name great through the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it really that big a deal? If you're indwelt by the Spirit of God, you will act in a way that God has acted towards you. In other words, forgiving, seeking reconciliation, preferring loss, suffering loss to bringing God's name into disrespute. So how should we respond? How can we respond in a way that makes sure that we do not leave the followers of Christ dispirited by our breakups and disappointed by our disagreements? 
How can we act in such a way that we do not, before a watching world who actually loves scandal in the church, how do we make sure we we do not commit another PR disaster? Well, look forward. You're end-time judges. And look back. You're one-time sinners. Because of what you are now, and because of what you will be then, act like it now. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the challenge of these strong words from the Apostle Paul. And we pray that for any of us who are, well, many of us are not struggling with uh, the thought of taking another brother or sister in the church to court, I'm sure. But yet many of us are struggling with the same sins that underlie that. When we have disputes and disagreements in our marriages and uh, between brother and sister, sometimes over trivial things, I grant that we might keep in mind uh, that you have given us one another to judge situations to help us figure out what is the best way forward and help us in the light of who we will be on that day to come and in light of what you have done to make us what we are now help us to act like Jesus and truly love one another deeply with humility and self-sacrifice with mercy and grace may we act towards one another and so be a burning beacon a bright light for your holy name in this city and in this world. We ask this for your glory. In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.